Hi, Greg Perry, the historic preservationist. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 345. Continuing on the Colonial Craftsman series, we're going to move from the uh, gunsmith, our last uh, episode, and we're going to move into the whitesmith. We talked about a blacksmith even before that. So a whitesmith is now called a tinsmith in modern lexicons. So what we call tin is, of course, actually tin plate. Sheet iron coated with tin to prevent rusting. Early sheet iron was made in small pieces by repeatedly heating and flattening bar iron. At first under tilt hammers, but after 1800, by passing the bars between water-driven rollers. Tinners, as distinct from tin smiths, cut the sheets to quite small sizes. The largest 12 by 18 inches. Pickle them in mild acid, scour them with sand, and dip them wet into a cast iron pot filled with tin, kept molten over a charcoal fire. A skim of tallow on the surface prevented air from oxidizing the tin immediately. Since tin melts at around 450 degrees Fahrenheit, the fire didn't have to be very hot. The tinners believed the tin penetrated the iron and formed an alloy with it. But they were wrong. No American sheet iron was tinned until about 1830. And even then, it had to be done with Cornish tin. When a blacksmith, say in Newburyport, Massachusetts, made the first American tinware in 1680. His grease lamps were certainly uncoated sheet iron. The latter, whitesmiths, brought his tin-coated <coughs> tin iron by the box at the nearest large town, cut it with bench shears to his wooden patterns, and shaped it by bending, crimping, and hammering. He worked a somewhat stubborn and restricted metal, Overheating would destroy its coating, and hammering too great a bulge in it would break the coating. Sometimes he did hammer it into a dome shape for a lid, but he seldom did so without retinning it unless he knew the finished job would be painted. Simple curves and even right angle bends, if they weren't too sharp, were no trouble at all for him. The whitesmiths stuck to boxes, cylinders, and cones or combinations of these shapes. When he made a tin cup, he turned its lip edge over, not only to make it smooth, but also to stiffen it. Any large article, like a pail, required additional stiffening in the form of an iron wire enclosed in the rolled over edge. So that edge was a very supporting factor. Just think of a raised tin roof, which is a really common thing you can uh, you know, get into your mind, I think. But the whitesmith also used tools similar to those of workers in more ductile metals. But the simple shapes, uh, but the simple shapes he made require far fewer special ones. In addition to the big shears anchored in the hole at his bench, he used hand snips for small cuts and nippers for trimming off tags and corners. His flattening anvil was a square block of iron set on a thick post. Bends of large diameter, he usually made by tapping the metal with a mallet as he held it on a debarked log projecting horizontally off the edge of his bench. 
straight and curved steel edges set in bench holes served as anvils for turning and rolling the edges of the tin. Hammers, punches, pincers, and files came near to completing his shaping equipment. Tin can't be welded. Its joints have to be soldered. The colonial tinsmith made a butt joint, that is, a joint uniting two flat pieces or the ends of a single piece used on the walls of a cylinder or a box. By lapping the edges or by turning the edges and hooking them together, turning the edges, in either case, he fluxed the joint with rosin so that the heat would not oxidize the tin and ran the molten solder between and lapped the faces of the metal. When he put a bottom on the box or a can, he cut it slightly oversized and turned the edges up to a size that would fit perfectly around the walls. Then he ran solder into the space between the wall and filled the little flange. He used a soft solder, probably one part lead and two parts tin, which melts at around 350 degrees Fahrenheit. It had a no uh, bismuth in it as soft solder does today. Because he didn't know what bismuth was, the smith applied it by setting chips of solder along the flux seam and then running them in with heat from a soldering iron, which was actually copper, which he kept hot in a small charcoal furnace on the side. A good smith left no solder visible on any joint. Rain gutters and downspouts made to fit a particular building and a few special articles like chandeliers and extra-large lanterns constituted the tinsmith's bespoke work, but by no means ended the list of many of the things that he made. Largely, his stock items were cheaper forms of articles that were also made of better materials. Tin, <coughs> tin dippers, strainers, and pans instead of iron ones. Tin pails and cups instead of wooden or copper ones. Tin lamps, landers, and candle holders instead of brass and pewter ones. Quite a few things. Candle molds, candle boxes for handy storage, small tea or spice cans, tinder boxes, and sand shakers for sprinkling sand on letters to blot the ink could be made of other metals but served their purpose just as well in tin. The list of the tin articles is almost endless. Somewhere near the beginning of the 18th century, perhaps earlier, somebody invented the roasting kitchen, a reflecting oven built in an arch-top box on legs with one open side to face the fire. A spit ran through it, a pan in the bottom caught drippings, and a door in the back gave entry for the cook's basting spoon. Some roasting kitchens were sheet brass or copper, but tin ones roasted meat as well as the best. Square tin lanterns had three or four glass sides, usually protected by crossed wires, while some round ones had no glass, whatever, and allowed their faint light to escape through several hundred small holes punched through from one inside of the patterns. These round ones are often wrongly called Paul Revere lanterns. It's a disnomer. But America's most famous horseman, so to speak, would have had trouble seeing one across from the Charles River. And, two, his actual glass-sided lantern 
still does exist, and it wasn't punched. A drawing of it is reproduced in the, uh, the Boston Museum of Fine Arts. Tin sconces hung on the walls and reflected their candlelight from back plates, either tall and narrow or round with crimped edges. A tin chandelier held one or two rows of candles distributed around a rigid core and a ring in its top for hanging. When the cores were tin, they were perhaps a little too rigid to look better than quaint. Turned wooden ones were even better. Each candle stood in a tin socket fastened to the end of the tin arm, commonly S-shaped and arranged radially with its mates around the core. Most chandeliers were painted black, but some were dark green and even dark red. For instance, the Newburyport tin Betty lamps, as, as they're called today, were far from being the last of their kind. Such lamps are known to have been made by the late, as late as 19, or 1850s, and when the last one was usually uh, used, it's anybody's guess. But the Betty lamps existed in Europe long before America was even discovered. Its design is an improvement on the primitive cruise, which was nothing more than a grease-filled dish with a lip for a wick to rest in and to dip grease so freely, freely that the second dish commonly hung below the first to catch it. The Betty lamp burned grease and smoked, but it didn't drip because, though it was shaped like uh, the cruise, its wick rested not in the lip, but in the small slanting trough set a little back from the lip. The Betty also had a hinge cover to limit the size of the flame, a refinement of the cruise seldom had. Blacksmiths made iron Betty lamps, but tin ones were easy to make and much, much cheaper, though not quite as pretty. After 1750, American whalers brought home increasing quantities of whale oil that gave more light with less smoke than any lamp that had ever been made before. The reservoir of a whale lamp oil could be made any size or shape that would permit a fair-sized hole in its top for a burner, and of any material that could be readily shaped. Pewter, copper, brass, glass, and tin were all used, but the burners themselves were nearly or generally always made out of tin. And since tin was a cheaper material, most of the lamps were made of it, except in very cold weather when it needed a little warming, whale oil was thin enough to climb the wick, held in a slightly tapered tube, which was soldered into the disc that had its edge turned up to catch any overflow of oil. This was called a drop burner. It was dropped over the hole in the reservoir, and it worked well except that the oil might spill if the lamp were ever moved. Some American genius overcame this by adding a cork which he kept in place by soldering a smaller disc to the wick tube below it. The next step was to screw a burner into the lamp. Most of the latter ones were threaded. In all, whale oil burners um, had a vertical slot in the upper part of the wick, wick tube, admitted one point of a pick wick to raise the, the fabric common was best as burning shortened it quite quite quickly. But Ben Franklin found that a burner 
with two wicks gave more light than two lamps that <clears throat> that would give and with these three wicks nearly equaled the four lamps so by heating each other they vaporized the oil more completely normally the flame of a whale oil lamp burned unprotected with no chimney giving a better light than a candle but not making anyone blink with its brilliance hand lamps intended to be carried did sometimes have micus chimneys like <clears throat> like many located in the boston museum of fine arts some lamps usually pewter ones were equipped with one or more thick convex lenses lenses to concentrate their light for reading and artisans often suspended spherical glass globes filled with water in front of their work lamps or candles to focus the light more acutely on their material whale oil was quite expensive though in the day the commonest kind cost roughly a dollar and a half a gallon in, in 1850 and even sperm oil which gave a brighter light cost a dollar more west of the Appalachian Mountains it was hard to get either any at any kind of price any the, the, the whale oil or the sperm oil the substitute was oil squeezed from the fat of the four-footed prairie whale Lard oil was also thick. In fact, it was nearly solid except for hot weather. So it needed a special burner, and this was devised for it by the tinsmith. The brass holder of a wide, flat wick extruded deep into the reservoir, and after the lamp burned with a low, <coughs> low for just a while, the metal conducted enough heat downward to liquefy the oil. A little pre-warming by the fire hurried things up considerably. So around 1800, it was discovered that distilling turpentine over quicklime would remove the rosin from it and allow it to burn in a lamp with a bright white light and no smoke whatsoever. But unfortunately, it made a potential bomb of the lamp. If a spark reached the gas that collected in the reservoir, a fluid lamp would readily explode. It happened pretty frequently. Around 1826, the danger was reduced somewhat at some cost of illumination by diluting the turpentine with alcohol. These burning fluids are known generally as camphene, and they were used along with whale oil and lard oil until the introduction of the kerosene after the Civil War. The burners or fluid lamps were quite like those uh, for whale oil lamps, except that the wick tubes were longer and slanted away from each other. There were always two or three of them uh, in existence in any lamp. Nobody dared to blow out a fluid lamp, so each wick tube had to be had, a, had an extinguisher cap chained to it. So just drop the cap on top of the wick and would put it out. All the tin sugar boxes, money boxes, candle boxes, lamps, coffee box, and so on were useful and cheap. But people found them ugly, and someone thought of ornamentating, uh, <coughs> ornamenting them. The first work was a sort, uh, the sort was known as Japan tin. Artisans in Wales so decorated tin soon after 1700. And later ladies, with time on their hands, did it in a polite, as a polite accomplishment, as it was called in the day. They first gave the article several coats of dark brown asphalt and varnish, and then embellished the surface by painting on bright colors to keep 
from calling the product anything so common as tin. The elegant used in French the word toit, which meant the same thing, toll or took on in the colonies in the latter half of the 18th century and remained popular well into the 19th, acquiring along the way a cheaper, poor relation decorated with stencils. Any tin article that might appear outside the kitchen was toll, and some of the trays, tea caddies, and so forth are quite handsome. So a pair of Irish brothers, William and Edgar Patterson, who were trained whitesmiths, came to Berlin near Hartford, Connecticut in 1738, and they went to work at their trade. They brought imported tin plate from Boston. Berlin, little more than a hamlet at that time, offered a limited market for the Patterson products. So the brothers slung sacks over their shoulders and went peddling through the countryside. They took country pay, trading pails and dippers for hides, tallow, and spun yard, rags, wood ashes, and feathers. And they learned to mine their profits and trade sharply. Success suggested longer trips, so they mounted horses and each set off with an apprentice leading a pack of horse-carrying um, uh, wagons full of tinware. Soon the Pattersons stayed home to keep shop and hired others to do their peddling, and they added notions like needles and pins, salt, spices, buttons, and almanacs to their packs. Other craftsmen, often tins, tinsmiths also, also, began looking out over the horizon for markets. After turnpike building began in the 1790s, they could send out wagons car carrying a larger stock of the Yankee peddler as soon as familiar whetstone became well organized. It was in the fall the master tinsmiths sent journeymen by boat to central points to Charleston, Richmond, and Albany, even to Montreal. These men worked all winter making stock for the peddlers to take out in the spring. Tinware remained the core of the trade, but the peddler loaded his wagon with every port portable article that people living beyond stores would need or ever want. Hardware and horn cones, combs, books and brushes, clothespins and cheap jewelry, seeds, shoes, spectacles and suspenders, with springs, plug tobacco, and terry clocks with wooden works. When he had peddled his whole shag, his wagon was still loaded, but now with the stuff he had taken in trade. The peddler then returned to a seaport, sold his produce, his horses, and his wagon, and he buckled the cash around his waist and took a ship to Connecticut where he gave the boss an accounting of what was sold and was paid off. Later peddlers used specifically built wagons with compartmentalized bodies. These they used for repeated multiple trips of various type items. There were cheaters, of course, but the story that the peddlers sold wooden nutmeg is, is Yankee humor, really is. And in general, the load on the wagon was honest. The peddler was a slick article. He got full value and more for what he sold, but many of his clocks are still running when a clock was the object of desire and sale. So that's Greg Perry, the historic preservationist, um, signing out, and, and that finishes up with the tinsmith. Thanks for listening.